Today we are talking with Dr. Fletcher about our subtypes of dyslexia real. Like I said, we've got his link to his book pinned up there. That's just from Amazon, a lot of places uh, you can get the book from. So Dr. Fletcher is a distinguished research professor at the University of Houston. And six, since the 1970s, he has completed research on many issues related to learning disabilities, including definition and classification, neurobiological correlates, and intervention, and has written over 400 articles in peer-reviewed journals. He is the principal investigator at the Texas Center for Learning Disabilities and has served on and chaired the on the Mental Retardation Developmental Disability Study Section for the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. He is a former member of the NICHD National Advisory Council for the President's Commission on Excellence in Special Education. He's a, a recipient of the Samuel Torrey Orton Award from the International Dyslexia Association and the Albert J. Harris Award from the International Literacy Association. Dr. Fletcher is a past president of the International Neuropsychological Society, and he is one of the leading authors of the Learning Disabilities from Identification to Intervention, second edition that I have up pinned on the page. So, welcome, 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 Dr. Fletcher. We're so excited to talk to you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So, um, one of the first chapters in the book is Are Learning Disabilities Real? So how does a researcher like you go about answering question, a question like that? I mean, learning disabilities are not like measles or mumps. There's no definitive way to measure them. So how do we prove that learning disabilities are real? Well, I we wrote that chapter uh, partly because uh, people were saying that uh, we didn't think learning disabilities were real because we were questioning some of the uh, assumptions around assessment and identification, and particularly the idea that you had to uh, measure cognitive skills to identify uh, people with learning disabilities. Uh, we were proposing instead that uh, learning disabilities were manifested uh, when uh, kids did not respond added to instruction that works with most children. In other words, the primary marker uh, was uh, an inability to, uh, to, to, to learn to read as opposed to some sort of cognitive uh, discrepancy. And so because of uh, people said that we didn't think they were real, so we wrote the chapter to explain exactly how it was that you would go about demonstrating that learning disabilities are real. Um, it's, it's basically a hypothesis. Uh, there's no pro, there's no uh, gold standard for a learning disability. Uh, you don't know who has a learning disability independently of how you uh, measure it. But when you're dealing with uh, phenomena like this, uh, what you know is it's no different than attention deficit disorder, which is also not real independently of how it's indicated. 
so what you do is you talk about the attributes, you form hypotheses about what the attributes of a learning disability are, just like you form hypotheses about the attributes of uh, attention deficit disorder, things like impulsivity, hyperactivity, uh, and so on. Well, it turns out that if you study uh, the attributes of ADHD, what you find is that they're normally distributed in the population and that, in a sense, what we call ADHD is variational normal development, much like uh, weight or height or an attribute uh, like that. In a learning disability, the attributes that you might identify as indicating the learning disability, things that you want to measure, are also normally distributed. Uh, things like, you know, academic achievement, any kind of cognitive skill, even instructional response. These are all part of, content of, a, of a continuum. So when people talk about dyslexia, for example, it's not a qualitative uh, difference with so what we would think of as typical reading ability. It's a quantitative difference. And so that makes it hard because we don't know exactly where to put a threshold that indicates uh, poor reading. Anything that we uh, decide is arbitrary unless we go in and study it and uh, demonstrate the validity uh, empirically. And it's also a problem because anytime you take a normal distribution and you put in a firm threshold, and then you try and measure kids around that threshold, you know, like if we say that uh, kids have a learning disability, if they have a 16-point discrepancy between IQ and achievement, the 16 points is arbitrary to begin with, but our ability to measure kids exactly at that threshold, 16 point, is not very precise because the IQ tests and the achievement tests have measurement error and they're correlated. And so if you go in and you measure a child more than once, the individual children are going to fluctuate around that cut score 16. And there's really not much difference, for example, between kids who, who have a discrepancy of 12 points versus kids that have a discrepancy of 20 points. So the way you went about testing the hypothesis that learning disabilities are real is we uh, came up with hypothetical classifications, ways of identifying kids with learning disabilities, and then we compare them on attributes that aren't part of the definition. You know, if So if we use a IQ achievement discrepancy definition, we can guarantee that kids are going to differ. Uh, kids who meet criteria are going to differ from kids who don't read well and don't have a 16-point discrepancy if we use the same measures that we use for identification. The critical test is do they differ on things like, say, phonological awareness or rapid naming? Well, we can show differences that are meaningful, educationally meaningful differences between kids that have, say, basic reading problems or math computational problems or written expression problems. They vary along multiple dimensions. They vary in cognitive skills. They vary uh, in the brain circuits that uh, support reading, writing, and math. They even vary in, in a fairly obvious uh, dimension, which is that uh, you wouldn't go in and do the same intervention for a kid that has a reading problem that you would do for a kid that has a math problem, for example. So that's one way that we can show that they're real. And the second way is to demonstrate that these are problems that lead to difficulties with adaptation. That, you know, if you meet a definition of a learning disability, it's associated with difficulty functioning in school or society, you know, that you're, that you're occupationally at risk and so on. And so that's another way that you can demonstrate it. And the third way is to show that there's a scientific literature supporting that's evolved around a particular concept. And there are literally hundreds, thousands of articles. Uh, about kids with uh, learning disabilities, a fairly well-developed science. 
So that, in a sense, is how we know that learning disabilities are real. Right. I remember Dr. Burns saying it's the only construct that we measure using the construct, right? Or the, right? Am I saying that right? (laughs) Dr. Who? Dr. Burns, he was saying it was the only. Oh, Matthew Burns. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think, I think we do the same thing with intellectual uh, disabilities, in fact. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would say that learning disabilities and intellectual disabilities are the only disorders that we test for. Mm-hmm. So in the chapter, you address the question of classifying academic learning disabilities. You say you talk about five classifications of learning disabilities and that these, like you had just said, they're arbitrary. Um, so you arbitrarily chose five um and the three of the ones that were not in the federal classification, you did not choose those. What were some of the factors that you used to identify those five? Well, I I think I think that if you I think the arbitrariness is within the uh, within a particular subgroup. I always refer to these as subgroups of learning disabilities, and the arbitrariness is where we put a threshold you know, across multiple criteria that tells us, uh, that indicates, you know, that a person uh, has a learning disability, whether it's the 20th percentile or the 15th percentile or something like that. I mean, there, there, there are other ways to make it less arbitrary, like using confidence intervals and things like that, but we don't tend to do that for some reason with uh, learning disabilities. Uh, but the, the, the eight categories that you see in the federal definition are basically a hypothesis. And so the reason that we picked five uh, is that uh, those were the five. It's it's basic reading, reading comprehension, uh, math calculations, math reasoning or problem solving, word problems, and written expression is that those were the five that we could uh, generate evidence for uh, in terms of what we would consider to be a hypothetical classification. We can show that those five subgroups differ along multiple dimensions that are that are not dependent on how we define them. Like, like I said, like on cognitive skills, on uh, uh, the type of intervention that you would use, on the neural circuits, uh, on the genes that are involved. And so the book organizes the data that way. Then if you take uh, the six uh, group in um, in uh, in the book. The uh, if you take in, in the federal definition, reading fluency. Well, uh, it's questionable as to whether that's really independent of word reading difficulties, uh, dyslexia, because most kids with dyslexia uh, have fluency problems, and if you intervene, they continue often continue to manifest the fluency problems because of more general difficulties with automaticity. So, and we also know that kids with uh, math problems uh, and written expression problems also have difficulty with components of automaticity. So we pulled that out and talked about automaticity as a more pervasive problem uh, that affects children with uh, learning disabilities. That has a lot to do with uh, practice and early exposure and uh, things along those lines. Um, You could also uh, go in and, and take the other two categories in the federal definition, which are oral expression and listening comprehension. And we though, we rejected those for fairly arbitrary reasons. Uh, we felt like because they don't 
specifically involve reading, writing, and math, that they shouldn't be called academic uh, disabilities, and that they were better con considered under a classification that involves uh, communication uh, disorders, uh, uh, you know, as a speech and language kind of problem. Uh, so that's, that's how we came up with the five uh, subgroups. All right, and I'm going to pick up on something you had just said. You said that the children were not developing automaticity because of some type of something that had happened on early on in their learning. And I think a lot of us as diagnosticians who are conditioned to doing IQ testing and looking for correlates, I guess, in our testing, we're looking not to blame sort of something that happened or didn't happen early on in the instruction, but some something as part of that child's innate, um, like they're born with it and it wouldn't change. So, and, and I know you sort of define this word unexpected. I mean, we have lots of meanings or definitions, interpretations of this word unexpected. I've heard, you know, it's unexpected according to your IQ, unexpected to other, according to, you know, in relation to other abilities on it. But you actually take this word unexpected and say it's unexpected based on the instruction they've received. So can you talk a little bit more on this? Well, I think we can teach most kids uh, academic skills. Um, and, uh, you know, the problem is that, that just to take reading, for example, it's, it's also true for writing and maybe to a lesser extent for math. Uh, but you can take, uh, reading is not a natural process. Uh, you learn to read, uh, you know, we're, we're born with things that we can do, like uh, talk or walk or things like that. And we have areas of the brain, you know, that, 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 that organize very rapidly just upon exposure. You know, you, you talk to a kid, they start, you know, most kids will start to talk. Uh, most kids walk, you know, have a very predictable progression of uh, motor skills. We have areas of our brain that uh, allow for a very early development of pivotal skills like that involve visual processing, like, um, facial recognition or attention orienting, you know, being able to look at a look at a face or at an object. And those are things that evolve very early and where their neural circuits are, they're really programmed by evolution uh, over 40,000 years to develop very early, very early and, and, you know, preserve the species. Uh, academic skills are not like that. They are learned. Uh, they're not natural. If uh, reading was natural, uh, all we'd have to do is expose kids and it would work just like, uh, like walking and talking. And that doesn't happen. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have illiteracy in a literate uh, society. So because uh, uh, academic skills are, are learned, they're acquired, they're not natural, uh, what happens is that the brain has to reorganize uh, in order to support them. We take areas of our brain in reading that are uh, that are designed to support uh, the relationship of, uh, of, you know, phonological auditory processing, phonological processing and speech, and use them to uh, link to print, which is what we call the alphabetic principle. And the kid has to learn that. They have to learn that uh, print represents uh, speech sounds. And that represents one neural system that is largely uh, language-based. But then uh, once you start learning that relationship, uh, you have to be able to do it uh, with proficiency. 
so that uh, you can recognize increasingly large uh, units of words. And that takes a lot of experience uh, and exposure. And there's, there's another neural system that develops to uh, do that, that evolutionarily is designed for visual, pro for uh, facial recognition and attention processing. And so as you're exposed and you learn to read, what happens is that these areas become very attentive to the graphemic uh, features of words. It's not visual processing by shapes or anything of that sort. It has to do with being able to learn the statistical properties whereby uh, uh, letters and chunks of words are uh, organized. And so this, uh, this uh, visual attention system, uh, what some people call the brain's letterbox, uh, becomes increasingly proficient. And while you're always reading with these two systems in uh, operation, uh, this system allows you to uh, uh, recognize words immediately and automatically and at a lexical, a whole word uh, kind of uh, unit. They become part of your visual field uh, almost. And so I don't think of kids as hardwired for uh, learning disabilities. I think of them as at risk. I think that kids in inherit uh, characteristics that make them at risk. I think they're environmental characteristics that can make you at risk, uh, that you see operating in association with uh, economic disadvantage, the type of language environment uh, that you have when you're very young. Um, and I think these things, uh, I, I, I think that uh, instruction for a lot of kids, if it's not very explicit, uh, uh, the kid won't be able, will struggle to grasp the alphabetic uh, principle. And so the goal is to always identify kids as early as possible, give them the instruction that they uh, need, because most kids will learn to read if they get appropriate uh, instruction, and then look at kids who don't respond to at what we would consider to be adequate instruction uh, as a kid with a disability, with a potential disability. I see. That explains a lot for me, really. Um, but I mean, I, I, I keep saying that, you know, National Council on Learning Disabilities is saying we should identify one in five children with a learning disability, but then the nature of a disability is that it should be something uh, that, I mean, we, sh we one in five people should not be going around not being able to do something the rest of society should be able, that the rest of society can do. And if, if that's the case, then something's wrong with our society. Um, but that definitely, I mean, it was like something has got to change if, if that's the goal to make one in five children eligible for, as a, well, you know, a disability. <laughs> you know how you get one in five, right? How's you one use, in five? Well, it, you use a threshold of the 20th percentile, right? right. Uh, the, the prevalence of learning disability depends on where you set the threshold because it's a continuum. Um, uh, so, you know, most people think it's more like three to 7%, uh, but that assumes a lot of things like adequate instruction. Uh, you know, the problem is that if you don't teach a child appropriately, there's really no difference, uh, in how their brain works, uh, when they read or do math, uh, than if they are born with a high degree of genetic risk. Uh, you can't differentiate them. You can't differentiate them with psychometric tests. You can't differentiate them at the level of the brain. I mean, it just doesn't look different. Uh, and that's because a learning disability is really an interaction of biological factors that put you at risk and environmental factors that potentially ameliorate uh, the risk. Mm -hmm. We have far too many kids who uh, 
uh, struggle academically. And uh, we really do need much stronger instructional programs. And that's not going to happen by uh, identifying one in five kids uh, uh, with a learning disability. I mean, there's just no way to uh, provide programming to to 20% of the population. Right. So we are all familiar with the idea of the science of reading. It's uh, meaning that there's meaningful research that tells us there's effective ways to teach reading. So is there also along those same lines a sort of science of assessment that um, is evidence-based as opposed to other sort of popular methods of assessment? And how does one establish um, a science of assessment to prove um, its validity over other methods? Well, there, you know, science of assessment starts with reliable and valid instruments. And those we have. Uh, we can we can measure uh, constructs like intelligence or reading or adaptive behavior uh, reliably and with uh, validity. Um, the issue comes when we try and use psychometric tests to uh, identify problems like learning disabilities uh, or um, intellectual uh, disorders and so on. And so for a learning disability, it's actually very difficult to demonstrate a strong relationship with uh, IQ. Um, uh, the Shaywitzes talk about uh, dyslexia, for example, being uncoupled for IQ. And what they mean by that is that it occurs along the entire spectrum of uh, intelligence once you eliminate kids that have uh, intellectual uh, disabilities, the bottom 2%. So kids with learning disabilities really have IQs that range from 70 to 30, 130, and within that uh, distribution, it's very difficult to uh, discriminate kids based on IQ or IQ uh, achievement discrepancy. So the science emerges when you actually study these methods and you ask uh, if they make a value-added difference for identification, if your identification becomes more reliable, or in particular, if it has some type of relationship with uh, treatment. Uh, And that is very difficult to do uh, for IQ tests, uh, as well as for uh, cognitive or neuropsychological tests, or for methods that use those types of tests, you know, like uh, cross-battery assessment or things like that. So the science is involved when you uh, look at the reliability and validity of these uh, of these methods, and I'm sorry to say that um, that the uh, evidence just doesn't support uh, strong reliability or validity for these very prominent cognitive discrepancy kinds of methods. Right. So anything you're saying, any method that uses a cognitive that depends on a co- you know that sort of hangs its hat on there being a, a cognitive discrepancy would not be necessarily reliable. Reliability is sort of a universal issue, Uh, but they don't have the kind of reliability reliability that's advertised. I mean, if you uh, assess a kid with, uh, with say, a WISC WISC 5 and a Woodcock Johnson, and then you assess the same kid with uh, two Kaufman tests, uh, you know the K, the the KBC and the uh, KTEA. You'll identify entirely different kids 
uh, with a learning disability. If you uh, switch normative bases so that you use a Wexler and then you use, you, you use either a Woodcock-Johnson or a Wyatt, you'll identify different kids just because of differences in the normative basis of the test. I mean, these are very reliable measures, but they're not perfect and they're correlated. So anytime you use measures like that with a firm threshold, uh, you're going you're gonna to have uh, unreliability for individual uh, identifications, and you're going to magnify that problem if you rely on discrepancy. Uh, so when people do this research, either by using actual data with real kids and looking at it in relationship to brain function or to uh, 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 intervention response or something like that, they're not able to show relations with IQ or with some form of cognitive discrepancy. So it begs the question of why we do these types of measures, particularly when they, they just don't seem to have any relevance for treatment. Well, like I've heard people say, oh, if it's a problem with processing speed, we'll give them, say, the recommendation is to give extra time. Or if it's a problem with long-term memory retrieval, the recommendation is to give is to give a lot of supplemental aids to trigger those, those memories or that sort of thing. But since I started using more curriculum-based measures, I really felt like my recommendations go beyond basic accommodations like that. They really well, go... I, I think they would. They're, they're, the, the big question is, what do you learn? And, you know, I'm a neuropsychologist, but with these high-frequency neurodevelopmental disorders like uh, learning disabilities and ADD, what do you learn by giving the cognitive test that you wouldn't know if you had assessed, for example, reading fluency? Um, uh, the answer is not much. I mean, you know, and what would you recommend? Because we know that uh, we know that, uh, for example, if you intervene with phonological awareness and there's no print component, uh, there's no improvement in reading. If you uh, work on do work on working memory, and you don't do it in the context of reading and math development, there's no improvement. In, there's no generalization to reading and math. Why go beyond, uh, you know, direct merit of you know reading? and academic uh, skills, not just through CBMs, but through norm reference tests. Right. So um, so you, you akin giving an IQ test to something like doing an MRI on every student, saying that it makes a lot of questions, it doesn't give you a, a lot of answers always, um, but it is sort of important for researchers to study. It helps us understand the neural mechanisms, but you know the the brain media being you know i can i can uh, I can understand what the brain is going to show me you know in terms of brain activation if I know the level of the child's reading ability. That's how well developed the science is. I know that on average, if a kid has a word reading problem, they're going to have a phonological awareness problem, and the exceptions are mostly measurement error or the effects of intervention mm -hmm. so not that cognitive skills aren't important. It's not that uh, MRIs aren't important. Uh, you know, what we want to do is reduce the cost of assessment, uh, do assessment quickly, do it early, and get kids an intervention as soon as possible because the clock is always ticking. It is absolutely uh, ticking in terms of experience. If you don't have uh, access to print 
or you don't understand number concepts early in development, you start falling behind, uh, the neural systems don't develop, and it becomes very difficult uh, to catch up. So you're saying while I'm writing that 30-page paper on why this child has a cognitive problem and can't learn to read, we could have been doing an intervention to fix it meanwhile. <laughs> well, I'm spending all that time doing these long papers. So that's the whole idea behind uh, what we call MT, you know, multiple tiered systems of support, the idea of universal screening, progress monitoring, uh, the idea of intervening first, I, I uh, treat and test. We intervene first and then we test the kids that don't respond. And the assessment serves, we already know that they're having a learning problem. Mm -hmm. We've already got them in intervention. Sure. So going now, I mean, I wanted to talk about the IQ tests a lot because I feel like that's the whole basis of a lot of the um, the subtypes or the ideas of the subtypes. So in, in research, many of the scholars um, of reading have posed theories of subtypes of dyslexia. So what are some of the arguments or reasonings for subtypes and what are the subtypes they pose? Um, what do they hope to achieve by defining the different subtypes of dyslexia? Well, the oldest uh, proposals were the oldest proposals were based on uh, patterns of uh, IQ subtests, you know, WIS patterns, you know, WIS subtest patterns, and uh, more recently, you know, taking the um, the composites, you know, verbal comprehension, perceptual reasoning, and so on. And there are literally hundreds of studies uh, that just don't show any validity to uh, uh, this form of profile analysis. I mean, there's a new crop of studies every 10 years that shows the same thing, which is that IQ profiles uh, just aren't uh, reliably related to different kinds of uh, learning disabilities. Then there are other kinds of approaches. The reason it's interesting is that, um, you know, if you could identify, for example, a profile or a subtype that was uh, associated with a particular type of learning disability, it might facilitate uh, intervention. So, you know, people talk about uh, differences between phonological dyslexia and surface dyslexia, which some people call orthographic uh, dyslexia. Um, and you might provide kinds of uh, interventions, you know, where you really focus on uh, phonological decoding for a person with, with uh, with uh, uh, phonological dyslexia, and uh, you would focus more on automaticity and fluency and graphemic processing with a person that had surface uh, dyslexia. Well, when people study this, what they find is that the differences uh, between uh, phonological and orthographic dyslexia are really a matter of severity. Uh, that people with phonological uh, dyslexia have more severe reading problems than uh, people with uh, orthographic or surface dyslexia. And when they follow them over time, uh, what they see is that a lot of kids that start out with, uh, with uh, phonological dyslexia eventually look like they have uh, surface dyslexia because their phonological decoding improves, but they still struggle at the orthographic level. That's a very common uh, finding in terms of intervention. And then uh, kids that uh, have a milder problem, you know, where, uh, for example, uh, they may be more accurate, but they're very slow, um, often have a very transitory uh, problem. 
And some people use surface, surface dyslexia as an example of a developmental uh, delay. Uh, but that typology, for example, simply doesn't uh, hold up when you uh, subject it to longitudinal research or you, you actually start uh, trying to provide differential uh, interventions to kids that are, that are, um, that are uh, impaired in basic reading skills, accuracy, and uh, automaticity. It's really just a difference in the level of severity, and uh, it has more to do with this idea that I talked about uh, to begin with, about these attributes existing on the continuum. It's really a continuum of, uh, of uh, severity. Uh, and so that, that's uh, important, you know, knowing how severe it is, because when you do interventions, you want to group kids according to, into homogeneous groups. But that's really based not so much on the type of reading problem, but the level of severity uh, that's manifested. And it's more consistent with this dimensional notion of the attributes. Uh, in the 80s, we did, uh, we used empirical methods to try and define subtypes because uh, we noticed that uh, at a clinical level, you see all kinds of dual uh, kids. And so we, we can absolutely define uh, subtypes uh, of cognitive skills that are uh, reliable, um, but they don't, they, they just don't hold up once you start studying brain function or uh, uh, intervention response or something like that. So Keith Stanovich talks about something that he calls uh, phonological core, uh, I'm blocking on it, phonological co core cognitive variability. And what he means by that is that uh, at the core of, of, say, dyslexia, for example, there's a phonological processing problem. But kids will manifest other kinds of cognitive problems, uh, that are a memory problem or a rapid naming problem or something like that. But it's hard to demonstrate that they reflect much more than the severity of the reading problem. Got it. So um, if, if, this, if the subtypes would really work, we could take an intervention based on that and go out and apply this intervention to all the kids with that subtype and it should work and that's just not what's happening. Right? No, that happened. I mean, we, we look, we spent, um, I mean, I, that's where I started. We spent, uh, 30 years, uh, looking for, uh, subtypes with, uh, without a lot of success. Um, you know, people, again, people continue to write, you know, talk about profile analysis or subtype, but it's people saw, you know, at the, uh, you know, the other reason was was we thought we, if we reduced the heterogeneity, we would have a much better understanding of um, what's happening in the brain or the heritability, and that's not really the case either. Mm. So according to research, how should we as evaluators think of dyslexia? Um, so, well, I mean, I wrote this question, but now I guess I need to change it. You use the words unstable transient delay, and I like looked that up, and it was talking about an electrical generator, and I'm just not familiar with how electrical generators work. Um, and when I was looking at reading about different types of or, or what how people have categorized different types of dyslexia, it made me think um, like the, that your brain sort of holds on to a letter from a previous word and then kind of inserts it is that sort of what you're talking about when you talk about and an unstable transient delay 
Yeah, it has more to do with development and the idea of persistence. Um, you know, most most kids with dyslexia, so phonological processing problems earlier in development, and if they don't get intervention, it's really a very persistent problem. What people were observing in kids who uh, they identified with surface dyslexia uh, and not with uh, phonological dyslexia is that if they follow them over time, uh, it wasn't persistent. You could, you'd see it early and then it would go away. Uh, it wasn't reliable. And so they referred to it as uh, unstable and transient. Mm. And then you also um, used the words, um, we, we've talked about the arbitrary part and the continuum part, but then, and we've also talked about the normal distribution part. I'm trying to break down this email you sent me, a continuum of arbitrary carvings of a ar multivariate normal distribution. I think the part that there's a statistical word that we don't really understand is the multivariate is, and when I try to look it up, it's kind of like you have a three dimensional bell curve, like, yeah, multi uh, yeah it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a bell, you know, bell curves are, are unidimensional. Uh, you can also express a bell curve, you know, if you looked at uh, like the relationship of two variables, a bivariate distribution. When we talk about a multivariate distribution, what we're talking about is plotting multiple variables against uh, one another. Uh, and if you take a simple example, like IQ on one axis and uh, achievement on another axis, what it looks like is a cloud, uh, mm. a symmetrical uh, cloud. Uh, that spread up as opposed to, uh, for example, uh, you know, like a, like clumps, uh, you know, you know, in a, in a cloud, there are a few cases at the bottom and you get more and more until right in the middle, there's a, you know, the most, the most cases and then the cloud starts narrowing again, as you go higher, uh, on the ability scale, uh, something that would be different from that would be, uh, say, a, a normal distribution that has a hump at the bottom. That would be a that would be a qualitative difference, uh, and would be a non-normal distribution. You see distributions like that, for example, if you plot social skills in kids with uh, autism, where uh, you have uh, some kids uh, who have social deficits that are on the uh, normal continuum. But if you look at kids who meet uh, classic definitions of autism, they're on a different tail uh, that, that goes much lower uh, than, uh, say, two standard deviation, you know, a two standard deviation uh, range. If you looked at it from this multivariate perspective, what you would see instead of a sort of a smooth cloud are clumps, you know, a clump here, a clump there, a clump there, you know, different subgroups. And that's just not what happens. Mm. So, um, and when you talk about policy, let's go to policy now. You mentioned different definitions that um, are exclusionary and inclusionary. And there seems to be a lot of, I feel like there's some misunderstandings that I was hoping to clear up. Uh, and that misunderstanding is that pe I feel like people are assuming that because you've said that certain types of, or certain characteristics of some children with dyslexia are, tend to be more developmental, and then some are more, uh, this is more of a disorder that the children who have the more developmental problems shouldn't be considered as students with disabilities or learning disabilities. Well, and I think that's really misunderstanding of every, of everything you're doing, right? Yeah, the I mean, dyslexia itself 
uh, you know, if it if it's sufficiently severe, it's very persistent. It does not go away. Um, you can you can treat it, but if you don't treat it early, it just it just persists, and the child really struggles to catch up. Uh, that's not necessarily necessarily true for milder cases, but you know, if you're starting out below the fifteenth percentile in your word reading, it tends to be a very persistent problem after uh, second grade uh, or so. Uh, when I talk about exclusionary factors, uh, you know, you, you have to understand what the origin of exclusionary factors is. When public law 94-142 was passed in 1975 and learning disabilities became one of the categories in what is called uh, IDEA, there was a, th this is in the middle of the civil rights move. Um, and by one of the functions of the civil, you know, Title I uh, programs. Well, when the one forty two with learning disabilities were included, Congress was very concerned about double dipping. Uh, that that kids would be classed learning disability uh, and with uh, and in Title One, and schools would collect money twice uh, for the kid. So they tried to be very clear that uh, if you thought the academic problem was attributable to economic disadvantage or to uh, a different cultural background or to oral language proficiency, uh, you shouldn't be uh, identified with a learning disability. Now, I call those contextual factors. Uh, and the reality is that we have a lot of difficulty uh, discriminating academic problems that occur in association with economic disadvantage from those that occur with economic advantage. Uh, certainly, uh, in relation to economic uh, disadvantage, they tend to be more severe. And the causes may be different, but we aren't very good at sorting uh, academic problems according to cause. Um, emotional problems are supposed to be exclusionary. And I think the idea is that some kids don't learn unmotivated or lazy or something like that. Well, what we now know about emotional functioning is that if a kid has a learning disability, there's a very occurring uh, emotional and behavioral disorders. The one that stands out is ADHD. Uh, about half of all kids that get identified with learning disabilities also have a disorder. And a case of one causing the other, uh, the kid usually has two different problems and it's important to identify them because if you treat only one of them, the kid is not going to do as well treating problem, uh, meet uh, clinical criteria for uh, problem. Uh, and we have, we're actually doing studies now where we uh, take kids uh, in a reading intervention and identify those with uh, anxiety. And so we give some of the kids uh, a reading intervention and some of the kids a reading intervention along with a cognitive behavioral intervention for anxiety. Anxiety is a very robust predictor of uh, inadequate response to instruction, uh, but it's because the kid is upset. Uh, that they're not reading as well as other kids in the classroom. I mean, kids know this in first grade. Um, so, you know, the only, the, the things that really are exclusionary, um, you know, are things like oral language proficiency because the child uh, doesn't have adequate 
uh, English proficiency. And so you have to test the child in both languages to see if, if it's a pervasive uh, language. Intellectual disabilities are absolutely exclusionary. Um, uh, it doesn't make any sense to uh, talk about a kid with an intellectual disability as having uh, dyslexia, although some of them uh, you know, certainly have word recognition problems that are surprising on average. Uh, kids with intellectual disabilities often read well above their uh, intellectual level if they're if they're actually taught uh, reading. Uh, but to, you know, if you're if you if you're in an assessment situation and you think a child may have an intellectual disability, that's when you would absolutely pull out an IQ test. You'd also do an assessment of adaptive behavior, because by definition, intellectual disabilities uh, are manifested by deficits in, in both IQ and adaptive uh, behavior that are at least two standard deviations below the mean, taking into account the standard error of measurement using a confidence interval, which you never do with uh, learning disabilities. Uh, autism. Autism spectrum disorder is probably uh, exclusionary of a learning disability, but pro be because the kid needs an entirely different kind of uh, of intervention. But if you have somebody who's depressed who's having reading problems, what differs in the intervention that you would do? Rather, what you would do is you treat the depression and you treat the intervention. So, you know, what we emphasize is the importance of measuring and evaluating uh, all these kinds of conditions as the kinds of things that are really important for diagnosticians to do. Uh, you need to know uh, about the you need to know about the uh, child's uh, level of achievement in the domains associated with IDEA. You need to know about the child's instructional response. Uh, and then you need to know if there are other factors that influence uh, uh, their uh, intervention response. I mean, you know, in an RTI model, what we're really asking is not, do you have a learning disability, but why haven't you responded to intervention? It's a very different question. Uh, but it's one that's directly related to treatment. Right, because I saw, so I was, going back to that question, I saw, people have told me, you know, surface dyslexia, for example, that's not really dyslexia. Uh, I've, and they referred me to um, Scottish Rite's orthographic processing position, and I read that. It doesn't really say that orthographic characteristics are not, not, um, a learning disability or not dyslexia, it just says that they are, that they're, that the subtypes that they don't support, like you said, subtypes of dyslexia, but they do talk about them as a delay rather than a genetically determined cognitive deficit. I don't, you know, I think, I think everybody gets messed up when they try and, and separate and, and use this language that, re that relates to uh, innateness. You know, it's all related to the level of, uh, level of reading ability and you can't you just can't take surface observations and say that uh something is uh genetic or something is innate or something like that i mean i mean kids with learning disabilities have visibly normal brains uh there aren't major genetic uh deficits i mean this is not down syndrome right so um I mean, I'm going to ask you the same question I'm asking a lot of people because we're put in this situation. Sorry. Feel, I feel like this, all the definition of a learning disability in the research, we can't really diagnose learning disabilities 
accurately, validly, if we don't have the the um, progress monitoring tools in place. No, I think that's true. And and so, what do we do then? What what does a diagnostician do when you don't have? There's no progress monitoring tools in place, and we can't determine what you know came from instruction and what is not from instruction. Maybe they, they do some interventions that look like tutoring, uh, but that's really just tutoring. And then they're not you know necessarily pro- progress monitoring it. And when I say progress monitoring, I'm, I really do see the curriculum-based measures as important because they do have norms. So I know you mentioned curriculum-based measures before, and so they, you know, using a norm-based test, but the more recent curriculum-based measures that I'm speaking of all do oh, have yes. national norms. Yeah, the, re- the reason I, I talk about both is I think you need more than one criterion. Uh, you you right. shouldn't use just one because you, you'll get in, you want converging evidence. Uh, so you use two, two assessments of the same construct, for example, that are brief. But, but if, you know, what I do, you know, I, I ran a clinic uh, for 40 years and, you know, didn't have, you know, seeing kids who weren't doing well in school. And a lot of them, you know, came in because, you know, the school said that they uh, didn't have a learning disability. I would assess them. And sure enough, they did, but they didn't have a, what, a 16 point discrepancy or they didn't meet cross battery criteria or things like that. Um but I always do a, an assessment of instructional response. And what I do is I get a history. Uh, I, I, you know, if they have an ARD, I review the ARDs. I look at what type of uh, interventions they've got. If they had any dyslexia programs, what's the dyslexia program that the school has? What was the intensity of the uh, intervention? Uh, did the child show any evidence of improvement? Uh, you know, that's, you know, that's the best that I can do, but it's better than uh, nothing. I can tell you that the most common finding uh, for me is that the child uh, had never been exposed to an explicit instructional program, uh, that they, they've they been in uh, constructivist programs, balanced literacy programs, uh, magic math, uh, you know, programs that didn't involve explicit uh, instruction. Uh, and lots of kids will not learn adequately if they don't have exposure to explicit instruction that is teacher-led, teacher-driven, with an organized curriculum, uh, and so on. And frankly, a lot of these kids, even though I talk about on average really struggling to remediate kids, a lot of these kids did much better once they got an intervention that was explicit and intense. That's really impactful, you know, to to, to know that instruction has that degree of just, you know, results for us. We got a couple of things in the chat. Candace, you want to give us a rundown of some of the things that are going on in the chat? Okay. I think I have like four questions. Um, the first one is, how are reading learning disabilities distinguishable from low reading achievement? They aren't. It's a, it's a continuum of severity. That's that's my point. The only the only distinction I would make is between kids who respond adequately and ad- inadequately to instruction. That's the only distinction that I know is valid. I mean, the only way I know to identify a slow learner, which I don't, which is a, a concept that I don't accept, is to put a kid in an intervention and measure how fast they learn. It's just not a meaningful concept, mm-hmm. and this is not a meaningful distinction. 
I, I do remember watching a couple of your presentations. Um, I wasn't in a, at, personally at one of your presentations, but I did see that a lot of your um, instruction that was direct and explicit, I mean, th the chances of them not responding was pretty, pretty few and far between. I don't remember the percentage, but you said as long as there's some sort of direct instruction, I mean, there's no reason why they wouldn't be able to respond. Well, Is that kids. about Most right? Kids. Not everybody. I mean, I mean, you know, we got with early, it, you know, it has to be early, has to be, has to include universal screening and progress monitoring. Uh, but in the early intervention studies that we and others did, we could get those numbers down to uh, under 5% of the school population, which is much better than 20% of the school population that Nazi was talking about earlier. Right. I remember seeing that 5%. Um, so what do we do for that 5%? percent for the non-responders is there anything we um, we just we just ratchet up the intensity of the uh intervention i mean in the in the sort of model demonstration projects that we did uh we gave uh the kids that were part of the five percent it really was between two and five percent depending on the study we gave them very intense uh interventions you know like 80 hours of instruction in an eight hour in an eight week uh period uh, and about half of kids would respond to that. But then the others just tend to have very persistent uh, problems. And so our goal is to make them as good a reader as possible to try and maximize their literacy Got level, it. which is a goal that we have for any kid with a disability. I mean, I mean, just to give you an example, uh, Down syndrome stands out as a, I mean, you guys only see what one or, you know, a few kids with uh, with Down syndrome, but one of the things that you do with the kids with Down syndrome, because their auditory processing is so impaired and their receptive language is so impaired, is you get them in a reading uh, a reading uh, uh, intervention, because they can develop if they can develop word recognition skills, uh, they will read at the level of their receptive vocabulary, which is generally much higher than their measured uh, intelligence. Uh, so it's a goal that we have for any kid to get them to read at maximal levels. Mm -hmm. So my other question is, schools in Texas are rated uh, AF, A through F. How would there be any reliability for a method that relies on intervention response? Uh, the MTSS is just not consistent in Texas and referrals are not going to wait until these systems are in place. So what should you know we do in the meantime? Well, uh, the uh, rating system is based on the STAR test, which is a, a minimal standards uh, accountability test that should be that is and should be given to every child in the school, regardless of disability status, because that's the only way uh, that we have of knowing anything uh, about the, the quality uh, of instruction. I will warrant to you that if there is absolutely this variation in MTSS uh, systems and referral systems and things like that. But special education and referring kids for testing and things of that sort is not going to uh, help you uh, with the rating system. In fact, it's going to uh, lead to much more uh, persistent problems and lower uh, ratings. You know, when somebody asks me, what are we going to do about all the kids that struggle to read or what are we going to do about schools, you know, that have underperforming kids, uh, my response is not that we need better specialized programs or interventions or like that. We need stronger general education uh, programs. And that's where the bucks start. 
has to start with general education. Uh, yes, we have reading wars in Texas. Of so course. I can highly relate to that. We're still using reading recovery and Lucy Calkins or Fontes and Pinnell and their guided reading systems in a lot of our schools. So that really is probably the core. That's the big problem. I mean, mean, we can sit around and obsess over uh, how to identify kids with uh, learning disabilities and things like that. But until we enhance the quality of teacher preparation and journal education uh, instruction, you know, we're swimming against the tide. Our services you know, for people like us who work with disabilities ought to be reserved for relatively few kids that have really significant problems and who, who, who first need the protection, the civil rights protection that IDEA provides. IDEA does two things. It provides civil rights protections that are lifelong, and it is supposed to provide specially designed instruction. It can do a very good job with the first. It's inconsistent with the second, but it will only work if we cut the numbers down. And that really means that we need better general education instruction. And so if you really want to understand the problem, there are these wonderful podcasts by Emily Hanford on American public media that are sort of the best depictions of the problem with general education reading instruction that I've heard, even though we've had the same problem and talked about the same for at least uh, 30 years. Oh, yeah. Sold a story. Yeah, exactly. So we all been listening to it. Believe me, we, we are praising her for the great, excellent reporting she's doing because we are seeing that. I mean, especially in Texas, we, I've been in a school where everybody was hopping on a plane to go see Lucy Hawkins and making a party out of it. Like, just like she's describing in the podcast, mm-hmm. it's, she does a really good job of, of really describing yeah. all that. So we've had a question in the chat about, you know, I know you said that you really think about learning disabilities as five different categories, but there is that eight in the law. And how much effort do we put into actually making sure we're covering all eight? Um, what do we do in the meantime? And, you know, if the blog does, doesn't get rewritten, I mean, I would think, I would hope that based on your research and, and other researchers' information that, you know, the law would be writ- rewritten uh, eventually. But what do we do in the meantime? I mean, what I think I see, for example, oral expression, I don't see anybody diagnosing really learning disability due to oral expression. It really, really. <laughs> ought to be the province of the speech pathologist. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the category of eligibility doesn't matter. Uh, you get an IEP uh, based on your individual educational need. Um, so, frankly, we probably have way too many categories uh, in IDEA. Um, it'd probably be a lot easier if you simply reduce the number of categories, but nobody's going to go for that. Um, because of, just just because advocacy and you know things of that sort, uh, but as long as you know, if I had a kid where I was concerned, where I was oral expression, listening comprehension, you know, unless they're really young, uh, I would be uh, thinking about what uh, speech people do and not worrying too much about it. I'd want to make sure that's covered. In which case, you know, you're you're addressing the law. Uh, but I don't think that it necessarily has to be covered by the SLD category. Mm-hmm. I think uh, another issue we have is, you know, our idea law and what the what the federal law says about what a, what a learning disability is. And they use, you know, processing domains and, you know, with with where we're at and um, how far we we have not come as we'd like to. You know, we what are we are what are we going to do in the meantime? Besides, we have to follow what the law, the law says. Does not that say. A learning disability. That's a misunderstanding of the law. 
the law the law says that a learning disability is a uh, you know basically a processing a problem with uh, listening speaking you know etc cetera, etc cetera, manifested in difficulties with reading writing arithmetic and so on what the law mm-hmm. is you have to assess the manifestations not the correlates there is no provision that says that you have to assess uh, the processing deficits. And if you read the guidance that the Department of Education offered in 2006, when uh, IDEA 2004 was passed, it says explicitly that there's not a lot of support for direct assessments of processing skills. Uh, You assess the manifestations, and that means achievement, not processing. It doesn't doesn't mean that that's an invalid statement. I mean, processing deficits are proximal causes of uh, achievement deficits, but there's no evidence that there's value that there's that you learn anything additional in terms of identification or intervention by assessing both achievement and processing deficits. There's a lot of evidence that uh, if all you assess is processing deficits and you don't assess achievement, that you miss a lot of kids that have problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about, can we, because I know in your presentations, you talk about how, you know, dyslexia is not only just neurodevelopmental, it's also environmental. So can we, with our poor instruction, make students dyslexic? Yeah. Uh, Basically, uh, I don't think they're, I mean, we call them instructional casualties, but uh, I think it's very difficult to differentiate kids uh, after second grade, uh, you know, based on instructional quality. And I, mm-hmm. you know, to be, I think balanced literacy programs breed dyslexia. Yeah. That's just really, uh, I think, I think Candace is taking a pause there. Cause that's just really like, wow, the way we teach really has that much power. Well, you're not right. Read. You have to be, you know, many kids have to be taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, Their brain their brain mechanisms or their neurotransmitters are not activated when we don't teach them those really explicit direct parts of reading and decoding and knowing syllable types and phonology and, you know, all the different structured literacy things that we should be doing, but we're getting out, you know, guided, guided reading books instead and making kids guess what the words are. Because it works for some kids. People want to think that it works for all kids. Explicit instruction works for all kids, but uh, guessing at words only works for some kids. We need we need things that work for all kids. Right. So um, I, I think we better wind it down for tonight. But I mean, I, I, I'm sure a lot of us could just keep thinking a lot about all of these um, ideas. But um, I just wanted to leave off with you maybe telling us a little bit about your hope for the future in LD research. Um, assessment processes, policies, and what are some of the barriers to achieving that vision? How can we as diagnosticians make sure that we are supporting a scientific method in our everyday practice? Well, I'm I'm sure some of you have seen the uh, TEA-sponsored handbook that uh, Jeremy Misiak and I uh, have disseminated. You can you can get a copy of it on our website. It's www.texasldcenter.org. Uh, but we wrote a, a manual of best practices for uh, SLD identification. And I think if uh, the more that uh, people you know in the field can uh, 
you know, adhere to uh, these principles and really support the idea of briefer treatment-oriented assessments, uh, the closer to the science uh, you'll be, uh, we really ought to be putting more resources into intervention and not into treatment. And that's my, that's my goal. And my ultimate goal is to see uh, higher quality general education instruction, because I think that's what would lead to improvement in special education outcomes. And for those of you who um, are sort of new to Clubhouse, we did interview Dr. Jeremy Misiak um, back on June 3rd. You can go to the replays and they actually have that uh, document, that handbook pinned to the top of that page. So you can just click right from that. But it's go to replays and go to June 3rd. You'll see Dr. Misiak's um, Clubhouse discussion. It's sort of a part one to this discussion, I feel like. I feel like this is a part two to that because he was just talking about definitions of dyslexia, period. Um, but yeah, just click on that pin that I have at the top and they'll take you straight to that document. I, I just have a question of curiosity because I saw that that handbook actually has TEA's logo on it. Um, and I just wondered how, how what, is, is that a message that TA wants us to read this or how much of that or am I reading well, into that logo being on your document? <laughs> think about it. TEA cannot mandate uh, specific kinds of practices. Uh, I, I do know that TEA is going to come out with uh, more specific uh, guidelines for uh, SLD identification uh, that, that, that are designed to help interpret the uh, uh, regulations, but that's that's not going to happen for several more months. Uh, so there's no endorsement by TEA of the uh, of the uh, of that of that manual, but they did pay us to uh, produce it. That's why that's why, so why they had the copyright. Right, I see. And the Meadow Center is also on that, so they must have also helped pay for. Well, not um, they they paid both. Uh, uh, the uh, Texas Center for Learning Disabilities had the contract with TEA to produce the uh, the manual, and the Motor Center helped us with it. The gotcha. We're all very good. Karen Vaughn and I worked very closely together for years. Right. Yes, I I could see that. Um, so yeah, we are going to be following the news very you know tea very carefully to get all the guidance and there's the i feel like the um the guidance on the new ways to think about the learning disabilities uh came out in 2001 and it was in a webinar uh, the, the explanation for it was a very good uh, powerpoint that was presented but it was presented about 15 minutes into the program after a lot of stuff about deaf and hard of hearing that wasn't uh, that closely related. And so I feel like a lot of people did not have a chance. They were so busy coming out back out of COVID. They didn't really get a chance to discuss a lot of what was in that webinar and um, have really productive conversations. And I've, that's why, you know, one of the reasons I started Clubhouse is because we can really learn when we have conversations with people rather than just sort of watching them webinar uh, recorded a pre-recorded thing so uh, i really do appreciate you joining we will be you know i'm really encourage everybody to get the book um it has a whole summary of 
probably almost every learning disability journal article, research article that it refers to somewhere in there. Um, and it's just very, very comprehensive book of research on learning disabilities. Probably the, one of the most comprehensive books I've read. And what's the most important so, part, Nazi? Chapter six. No, no. No? All, all no, the intervention, the end, the end part. Right, that's, what, that's the important part. <laughs> the end part. Yes, the end, the, inter the interventions part. Well, you told me to read chapter six when we were talking about this show, but yes. After that, absolutely, the most important part is the intervention. And I've learned, you know, that my whole platform on this uh, podcast is to really tell everybody about curriculum-based assessments or curriculum-based measures and how important they are. And um, so I've been interviewing all kinds of people that create curriculum-based measures, and I'm, I'm just really excited to see all the research in that. It really takes me back to my original training at University of Maryland with Dr. Deborah Spies and, and you know, back in the late 90s, but it's, I'm just so excited to see, it's like, that's what I was taught. And now here it's coming back around. I wasn't, um, it, it, they were, it was, they taught me something really progressive at that time. And I really treasure that. So, yep. all right. Well, like I said, thanks for joining, okay. uh, keep in touch and people can forward this recording on and people can listen to the recording afterwards. So if you have a friend or whatever that you think might want to hear this, um, Go ahead and share. We really appreciate it. All right, I'm going to close down the room. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, everybody, for joining.